from the botanically assisted studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. It is time for another naturally healthy episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. Some herbs and supplements claim to improve every human condition, but is that possible? I'm Mike McGrath, and on today's show, we'll reveal which beautiful edible plant seems to check all the boxes. Plus, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and interestingly intertwined illuminations. So stay right where you are, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you drinking a cup of sour tea. Right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, a unique question of the week. Could there possibly be a single herb uh, that can help prevent or remediate dozens of chronic medical conditions? Normally, I would have said no, but now I'm going to say yes, and I'll tell you what it is. After lots of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. 888-492-9444. Brandon, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, Brandon. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm just ducky. And <laughs> where where is Brandon doing fine? Uh, he's doing fine in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Okay. What can we do you for? Uh, well, I'm calling because I live in Lancaster City, uh, and so everybody's right up against each other here. Uh, my next-door neighbor has about a 40- to 50-foot-tall pine tree that every fall uh, dumps just a ton of needles into my yard. Uh, it's killed a bunch of grass. I have a couple rose bushes out there that are barely hanging on. Um, so I can't get them to answer any calls to prune it. I can't get the city to prune it. Uh, I was just curious if I could make uh, some lemonade out of some lemons here and maybe use the pine needles for something or if there's something I could be planting uh, with that environment. Um, okay. And uh, in your original email to us, there was something about mm -hmm. uh, that house, the house with the big pine tree is a rental home. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yes. Okay. So you, uh, but of course, the poor person living there had nothing to do with the tree, right? No, they, they're yeah, they had nothing to do with it, and they're super nice, so I don't like to bother them. Oh, good. Um, how tall is this monster? Uh, every bit of fifty feet. Mm. And its roots are outside of your property line. Uh, yeah, so all of our uh, backyards are basically rectangles, and the location of it is just in the corner that basically meets our property. So it's just barely into their yard. So, I mean, I have their roots in my yard. Their roots are out into the sidewalk. It's, it's a whole scene. 
Okay, good. Um, well, not good for you, but good for my answer. Any time that someone else's plant crosses your property line in any way, mm-hmm. whether it's roots or branches, um, that's no longer their tree, that part that's mm-hmm. on your property. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned it's tearing up the concrete. So I would mm-hmm. think the township or city or municipality um, has to do something because it's creating a hazard. And mm-hmm. um, and that's out of your ability to take care of. I will tell mm-hmm. you that you're legally entitled to cut every branch off on your side. Um, okay. And if that's your idea of a good time, uh, I just hope it wouldn't start a war. Now, um, so the sidewalk has to get taken care of. That's that's mm-hmm. plan A. You got to go uh, to the zoning board or whoever um, takes care of things uh, that are not up to code, and have something done about that. And that is the responsibility of the tree's owner. Now, mm-hmm. um, you have a couple of options. Uh, do you have a bagging lawnmower? Uh, no, no. I have a uh, a leaf blower though that will grind up material and put it into a bag. Right. You have a a, a leaf blower with a reverse setting. Yep. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um. Now, when the needles drop, are they still green, or are they have they been turning brown? No, they're brown when they hit the ground. Yeah. Okay. Um, then I would say that your leaf shredder is a good answer. Uh, uh, some pines drop their needles while they're still green. It's just like, um, a constant shedding process. But if they're Mm -hmm. nice and brown, you can collect them, um, on their own, or it might be even better if you could collect them with fall leaves and and then compost them now you'd have to test the uh, because they're still even though they've turned brown they're still green material and the leaves of course are brown material so Mm -hmm. you would have i would suggest you test the resulting compost for ph um okay i think people overemphasize the acidity of pine needles, but I'd want to be safe. And you can go out and buy test strips or a little monitor, something like that. And if the finished compost uh, tests between 6.5 and 7, you're fine. Plants like most plants, like their soil a little bit on the acidic side. So that would be no harm. If it turned out that your uh, your compost was acidic, then it should be reserved for use around acid-loving plants, azaleas, rhododendrons. Hey, you want to grow some blueberries? You know. Yeah, I actually have a blueberry bush outside right now. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I would not try to compost them alone. Shred them and compost them alone. I think it'd be great if you could do it at the same time with some fall leaves. You know, if you need to 
um, suck them up at a different time in the season than simply have a bag of whole leaves handy and mix it okay. in. But, yeah, I mean, they're plant matter. They can be used. They should just be used more carefully. Um, it's a sin it's not the right because they are needles and not straw, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there are pines down south that instead of dropping needles, drop these long strands of what's called pine straw. And it is a perfect mulch, and it is the mulch of use down south. Um, But pine needles themselves, they're too small, they're too sharp, that kind of thing. If your roses are being affected, I would look at their proximity to the root system and maybe move the roses to a different area in the spring. I don't care how old they are. You can move roses, um, uh, you know, at your whim, mostly. They are very good at taking to transplanting. Okay. That's good to know. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. People think of roses as these flimsy, delicate things. Um, I -hmm. tend to think of them as bulletproof plants. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because I definitely wouldn't have thought to move them. I would have. I, I would have thought that would have killed them right away. Oh no! But do it in the spring. Wait until okay. yeah. Wait until about two to three weeks after new growth appears. You know, dig mm-hmm. them up. Get as much of the roots as possible. But don't worry if you don't get every single piece. Um, they they can take it. And then get them in their new spot, have that hole prepared, just fill it back mm-hmm. in with the soil you removed to make that hole, and then uh, mulch them with two inches of your best compost. Let a hole drip at the base um, for several hours every other day for a week if you don't get rain. And then you can back off to like, you know, twice a week, something like that. But make sure they get well watered while they're getting reestablished. Okay. All right. And uh, I presume like no burlap or anything in the hole or around the root system when I move them. Just move them. Oh God, no, no. Burlap (laughs) strangles the roots of plants. I don't know what people are thinking. You know, that's once you bury burlap, it doesn't disintegrate. You know, oh. yeah, it's okay. it's anaerobic down there. There's no oxygen. That makes sense. Sure. And yeah. it strangles the roots, which means, oh, the landscaper has to come out again two, three years later when the plant is dead. <laughs> I wonder how that happened. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good to know. It saves me from getting scammed. All right. Well, good luck to you, sir. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Have a good day. My pleasure. You too. Bye-bye. Ted, welcome. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ted. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. How you doing? I'm doing fine today. We have a, a beautiful day here. And where is here? Um, live just outside of Farmland, Indiana, which is in East Central Indiana. Okay, and uh, we're not we're not too far from Muncie, Indiana, where Ball State University is at. Okay, very good. We had some problems last year 
with European squash bore. Totally new experience for me. Never had issues with them. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what we could do to prevent and or treat them in case we have an outbreak this year. Um, we've been trying to keep our garden pretty much chemical-free. So if, if you would know of some things we could do in oh, that yeah. aspect, that would be great. No, I can't even imagine a chemical uh, that would be very effective uh, because, as you probably know, a moth flies into your garden, lays her eggs at the base of your squash vines, right where the vines come out of the soil. The eggs hatch and tiny little larvae come out and chew their way inside the hollow stem of the squash vine and they are hidden. You can't see them. And before you know it, the squash plant looks like it's either got too much water or not enough water. And if you tug at it gently, it'll just break off at the soil line. So that's just exactly what happened. That's why I get the big money, Ted. Uh, <laughs> I wish. Um, so the answer is physical. Um, do you do you grow from seed or do you start your plants indoors? Uh, both. And probably with uh, the zucchini and the melon plants and that, we start those first and then put out in the garden. Okay. So here's the deal. Any squash you're growing that has a solid stem, you don't have to worry about. They only attack hollow-stemmed squash like pumpkins. Um, okay. So I advise you um, to uh, start your seeds of all your squash uh, just so that you can get a plant that's about six, eight inches tall. And then, okay. then when you put it in the ground, you can do a number of different things. You can wrap medical tape uh, around the part where the soil meets the stem. And you want to go like three inches down and three inches up. Some people prefer aluminum foil. Again, same thing. And, and, and if you ever got a piece of aluminum foil caught in your teeth, you know that these little buggers are not going to enjoy that bite. I wouldn't think. Now, one interesting thing that has come up in the research is that it takes about a week from the time the female moth lays her eggs to when the little caterpillars come out. So if during that time you just get like a sprayer of just plain water and hit that area where the, uh, again, where the vine enters the soil, you'll dislodge the eggs okay. and ruin their day. Some people will also wipe the vine gently with a damp cloth. You don't need anything on the cloth. I mean, you're just removing those eggs. And if you do that once okay. a week, I mean, they don't have a chance. Okay, sounds great. Um, here's a question. Is there a certain time of the spring or summer that you really should be on guard for them? Yes, or just yes. Throughout. And you mentioned Ball Horticultural or Ball State yes. University. Um, is that yes. is that your uh, extension service for the, for the entire state of Indiana? 
No, no, that's through Purdue, but okay. I do belong to the Master Gardeners. I would go over, uh, no. in Delaware County. I would I would go to Purdue, uh, go on their website and look up emergence times. They will know exactly okay. when these insects um, start. When you know when the females fly in, that's what you want. As soon as the females okay. fly in, and you should also take a good look. I think the female. It's been a while. I think the female is very distinctive looking and may even be a day flying moth um, that looks very unusual. So as soon as you would okay. see one of these creatures, you'd go into your your wiping or spraying. But there's no harm to the plant to wrap it up way in advance of that. Sounds good. Thank you very much. My pleasure. You take care and have a good season, pal. Y- you too. Bye bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and warn everyone out there who hopes to get an early start on the season to begin their preparation by raking away any mulch off the surface of your garden beds. A solid two weeks before you plan to plant anything, that'll allow that soil to warm up. But don't go looking for where you lost last year's rake just yet because we'll be right back with the beautiful herb that heals and more of your healing phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up in a little bit, is it possible that there is a flower, an herbal wonder that can either prevent, cure, or lessen the effects of dozens of human conditions? Turns out there is. And I'll tell you all about it after more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. 888-492-9444. Barry, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hello, Mike. Hello. My name is Barry. Okay. And how are you doing, Barry? I'm doing fine. Thank you. I have a question. I have a question for you. Where are you okay. located? I'm in Allentown, Pennsylvania. All right, proceed. I would like to know your opinion on the use of Roundup to eradicate the constant growth of weeds on my property during the summer months. If I'm not mistaken, there were reports that Roundup is a carcinogen, and before I have my landscaper use the product, I would like to know your thoughts on its use. I also want to mention that we have well water, and my concern that the Roundup will seep into my lawn and into the well water will be toxic. If you would not recommend Roundup, what product would you then suggest? The weeds are driving me crazy. Okay. Well, all your concerns are more than valid. Um, Roundup is now considered um, a true carcinogen. 
the Monsanto company who put out Roundup have been paying out billions of dollars in claims to people who developed specific cancers while using Roundup. It does get into water supplies. It's been found in drinking water. And it is the opposite of a healthy environmental product. Uh, Roundup is probably the worst thing uh, a gardener can use right now. It's incredibly toxic. Not only does it give people and dogs and cats cancer, foul the water supply, it destroys soil life, it destroys the microorganisms that give us healthy soil. So please do not use it. No one should use Roundup. The problem is you go up to somebody, whether they're your landscaper or in a garden center, especially a big box store, and you say, what do I do to take care of weeds? And they hand you a bottle of Roundup because that's what they sell. That's how they make their money. The profit margin on these poisons is much higher than anything else they can charge you for. Now, there is no, quote, way to handle weeds. It all depends on where the weed is. So where are the weeds that are troubling you? Um, Are they in your lawn? Are they in a raised bed garden? Are uh, they somewhere, a gravel driveway, somewhere else? They are in areas where I have mulch, which is mulch. I have mulch every summer put down. And then within a month's time, the weeds start to just pop up. So you still, despite these weeds showing up afterwards, you still buy this mulch every summer? Almost. Almost every summer, yes. And is... And it's just... Go ahead. And it's just a pain in the neck. It's unsightly. And all you're doing is pulling weeds. Okay. Now, what kind of, quote, mulch are you using? Although uh, the people I, the people who sell it would like us to think that uh, mulch equals wood mulch, but it does not. So what are you using? Tell you the truth, I'm really not certain. The, our gardener, landscaper, puts down the, the typical mulch, I guess. There is no such thing. What color is it? Brown. Okay, so now you are putting trash wood that's been chipped up and spray-painted a color to disguise its origins in your landscape. Uh, Just because other people do it doesn't make it right, and matter of fact, it makes it wrong. Um, Does your landscaper pile mulch up against the trunks of your trees and stuff? I believe so. Yeah, everything is wrong here. You have a tremendously disturbed ecosystem. Um, the, the mulch is toxic as well. You know, one thing that I've noticed over the decades I've done this is whenever any enterprise has a toxic waste product, they turn to each other and say, you know, I bet gardeners will pay us money for that. So it is nonsensical. The the trend only started, I don't don't know how old you are, but if you're close to my age, 
You don't remember people mulching your yards. There was no mulch season back in the 60s and 70s and 50s. You didn't see these people with yards that look like a Burger King threw up around their plants. Um, but when landfills stopped accepting green waste, everything went to a chipping center. Old railroad ties, pressure-treated wood, construction debris, insecticide-soaked pallets from China, and they would chip it up. And then to disguise what it was, they would spray paint it black, brown, or Burger King orange, which I've never understood. Um, now, all these things are bad. I mean, you, you have a battleship that needs to be turned around, and I don't think your current landscaper is going to go for it. Um, what you want, and uh, what kind of areas are you piling this stuff up around? Um, my backyard, which is uh, landscaped with trees, mm -hmm. and then my front yard which is flowering bushes, mm -hmm. and whatever is not green um, is mulched. Uh, well, the first thing I want you to do is have your well water tested um, for herbicides and for chemical contaminants, and I don't know how you treat your well water before it comes into the house. Uh, but you could use um, a reverse osmosis filter or at least a series of charcoal filters to protect you because you're not, you're not doing your long-term health any good. And then you want to contract with a new landscaper any, quote, mulch will be either compost or what's called arborist's mulch, which is freshly cut trees like you get from the guys who work the power lines and stuff, Fresh, freshly cut branches that haven't been chemically treated. And um, you should not have trouble with weeds growing out of either one during a single season. Now, over the course of a season, dirt's going to blow around your yard, dust is going to come in, weed seeds are going to go flying in the fall, and of course you're going to get weeds. It, it's a lively planet. It still likes to grow. So two things you can do. Get a flame weeder, one of my favorite tools. This is a shepherd's hook that you attach a camp stove size bottle of propane to, and you stand up, and there's an electric igniter right where your hand is, and you turn the propane on, you point the stuff, uh, you point the tip at the weeds, and then you slowly go over them and dehydrate them. Um, obviously, you don't wanna do this during a hideously dry spell, um, but you don't want to do it when it's wet either. You want to do it during normal times. And, you know, with, um, well, arborist wood mulch is not going to set on fire uh, very easily, whereby I have to be careful because I use shredded leaf mulch. 
that's one way to do it. It is a fun way um, to pass the time. And, for instance, if you got dandelions in there, when you let them go to their seed head and then you use the flame on them, they explode in all these munchkins fireworks of different colors. It's lots of fun. And um, the other option is uh, a registered uh, herbicide um, that is based on iron. Uh, the biggest brand I know is called Iron X. Uh, but this has become very popular over the years, and you can find it at just about any garden center. And it is a spray of iron. You spray it on the weeds, and they dehydrate and die. And there's no poison involved. In fact, there is um, some benefit to adding some iron to your soil. But no matter what, you never have mulch up against a tree because it's going to rot the bark. I mean, let's face it, that's, it's moist under there. It's a place for mice and voles and wood-eating insects and pathogens to hide. Your bark needs to be, uh, your trunk needs to be exposed completely to air. Any mulching should start six inches away. No matter where we are on your property, no mulch should ever be deeper than two inches. If they're piling it on beyond that, they're just doing that to charge you more. There's no good horticultural reason for it. Sorry. Well, you've given me some very interesting information. Um, if I may, you mentioned a flame weeder. Yes. Uh, okay. One of the biggest and... models used to be made by burns matic uh, the ones who make the uh, little uh, flamethrowers for pipes when you're doing uh, plumbing. Um, they called theirs the uh, yard and garden torch. But if you uh, go online and just search the words flame weeder, you'll see a variety of styles. The one I recommend is shaped like a shepherd's hook that you attach a small propane bottle to the base. Thank you very much. All right, Barry, you take care and good luck to you. And now it is time for our occasional special feature in the news. Uh, this news comes from the New York Times. The author is Clay Risen, R-I-S-E-N, and I got a lot of my own material in here, too. But the point is, we are used to seeing what we call Indian corn, uh, those corns with the fabulous-looking kernels. Sometimes it'll be all red. Sometimes it'll be all blue. Sometimes it'll be all green. And we all love the ones with, like, a mix of colors on the same cob. Looks like you could hide in a bowl of jelly beans if you were carrying one of those. Well, we have talked about growing ornamental corn in the past, and mostly we've done it because this is the type of corn that makes the best corn meal, that makes the best corn chips, that makes the best popcorn. Uh, it is wonderfully useful 
It is meant to be a winter staple when the summertime crops are gone. And it stores wonderfully. Matter of fact, if you just want to grow it for the looks and there's nothing wrong with that, you can save the seed um, from year to year, season to season, because there ain't no chance that this is a genetically engineered corn or a hybrid of any kind. Some of these heirloom corns go back thousands of years. Not exactly to the prehistoric corns, where every kernel in every ear had a paper covering over top of that kernel. I've seen it. It's amazing looking. But the tradition of growing, again, quote, Indian corn is alive and well, especially in the Mexican province of Oaxaca where they want to revive more and more of these local indigenous ancient corns and get people used to them. But they have also come up with a unique way to turn them into an immediate cash crop for the locals. You may be familiar with bourbon, but did you know that bourbon is made from distilled corn? of any kind, apparently, because the indigenous people who farm these fields have found a great profit-making way uh, that they can get their money back immediately, and that is by using these colorful heirloom ancient corns to make a very specific type of bourbon. Um It has grown in recent decades. There is a company called Grand Maisel, a distillery outside the Yucatan city of Merida that works with local farmers. The companies use indigenous varieties of corn to make their whiskey. Now, I'm not telling you to make corn liquor, okay? I have no idea what the law is, either federally or statewide about this. But if you're curious and you want to support local agriculture that is preserving real heirloom varieties, you might want to seek this spirit out. It's bourbon, and once again, it is made by Gran, G-R-A-N-M-A-I-Z-A-L-C- if you can find it somewhere, and if not yet, maybe you'll be able to drink your Indian corn at some time in the future. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody in the area that I am appearing at the Connecticut Flower and Garden Show at the Hartford Convention Center today. I'll tell you what to do and what to avoid If you want to have the best-tasting tomatoes on the block today, Saturday the 24th, then we'll discuss composting and raised bed building later in the afternoon. But don't go looking for your car keys just yet, because we'll be right back with a tropical plant that just might be able to cure what ails you and more of your fabulous phone calls. 
I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at the Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens. And in just a few minutes, we will name the almost magical herb uh, that can uh, positively affect dozens of difficult conditions. I found it hard to believe, but I researched it for a month, and I believe it now, and hopefully you'll believe it too, after a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Karen, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi. Hello, Karen. How are you? I'm fine. How about you? I'm just ducky, thanks for asking. And where is Karen Fine? I'm down in snow-covered Quakertown, Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, I know it well. The former site of, actually, I think they still call it Trainer's Corner right there where um, Quakertown begins. Um, yes, it is still called Trainer's. Yeah, but it doesn't have the giant lobster up on the roof anymore. Nope, long gone. All right, what can we do you for? Well, I had a question about pruning Japanese maples. Yes. I had heard an episode where there was a man talking about a tall one and a short one. Mm -hmm. And something about pruning the taller one closer to match the shorter one. But... My understanding is the weeping part is grafted onto rootstock, and I just wondered if he pruned the tall one to match the short one, if he would inadvertently prune off the weeping part. So I was confused by that. Okay. Uh, We have had a lot of discussions about that phone call. It originally started when apparently his landscape got neglected for a while. And the shorter one, I I don't know if remember if it was the shorter or taller one, uh, but one of the two Japanese willows ate an iron plant stand or uh, a cast iron bird feeder shepherd's hook kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And he was asking for advice on how to get it out of there. And, um, he wanted, I believe, to prune it out, and I just thought that would destroy the look of the tree forever and instead told him to cut the metal part out, just get rid of it. It's quite likely that it would have gotten all bent up in the pruning and removal anyway and to just do that. Now, oddly enough, after that question, I did some research and found out Um, Because I was wondering, too, if there was a graft involved uh, for the uh, tree to have that weeping habit. And it does not. There are no grafts on weeping Japanese maples. That's how they occur in in nature. And um, so uh, they're perhaps hardier and easier to care for. 
than, um, than grafted plants. Also, there is a huge variety of sizes. You know, if you wanted to and you wanted to mix and match sizes, you could probably do a display of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves in, in defending, uh, descending order. And um, all of those are natural. I mean, they have been bred carefully um, to be of a certain size, um, but they're not genetically engineered and they're not grafted plants. So the idea here is to avoid any kind of pruning. It is very important uh, to know whether you have a plant that is grafted onto a different rootstock or whether this is the whole plant um, the way it naturally occurs. Now, to propagate uh, Japanese maples of any kind, you would take fresh cuttings in the spring and then you would propagate them. You'd put them in good potting soil and keep that potting soil moist and keep the cut edge uh, down there and cover it with like plastic wrap or something like that and keep it out of direct sun. And then you would watch for new growth. And say a month after that new growth appears, you would have a good enough root system to have a brand new plant. So it's, it's much better than a grafted plant in that you can make as many of these trees as you want to. Uh, but the idea of actually doing anything beyond that, pruning them, would kind of defeat uh, the look of the plant. Oh, and one other thing about a grafted plants. You have to make sure you never cut below the graft. Um, you have to make sure the graft is never covered by soil or mulch or the top part, the part that people wanted to see, is going to die off and you'll get whatever kind of a plant the rootstock was. So do you take the cutting <clears throat> from the weeping part? Well, you'd have to because that's the only place where yeah. you could take a cutting. Yeah, and you would you would choose a spot that's out of the way um, and just take two or three cuttings in spring right after growth first appears. All right, thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. All right, as promised, it is time for the question of the week. We know you've been waiting to hear the name of this plant. So we're going to tell you right off because we're calling this the healing power of hibiscus. Now, Joe and Teresa Graydon are the faces behind the People's Pharmacy, a series of books, syndicated newspaper columns, a popular website, and, of course, a podcast. They are both also real pharmacists. Now, their specialty is helping people understand the risks and benefits of prescription medicines, but they also delve into the potential effectiveness of, quote, home remedies. If you've ever been advised to sleep with a bar of soap between the sheets to ease nighttime leg cramps, it probably originated with them. A recent edition of their online newsletter featured an interview with, quote, America's pharmacist, Susie Cohen. 
about the medical effectiveness of certain botanicals, especially hibiscus, to lower blood pressure. There are many cultivars of this beautiful and useful plant. Most are tropical and subtropical varieties that are grown indoors in winter in cooler climes. Although not native to the United States, they are still excellent pollinator plants, attracting all sorts of bees and butterflies. They're also a favorite pollen and nectar source for hummingbirds. They come in a wide array of flower colors, with red being the favorite, of course. There are also varieties of hardy hibiscus, like the famous Rose of Sharon, which survives northern winters outdoors without protection, but blooms very late in the season. Although pollinators love it, probably because it blooms so late in the season when other food is scarce, it is classified as invasive because it can spread via seed, a problem I have not noticed on my landscape. Each individual flower blooms for only one day, so if you intend to harvest them for medicinal use, pick them first thing in the morning when they will have the richest phytochemical component. It also keeps nearby walkways and tables clear of dropped flowers. All sources agree that all parts of the plant are edible, so go ahead and use the flowers, leaves, whatever. But, and this is a big but, do not use any form of hibiscus if you are pregnant, plan to become pregnant, or recently gave birth. Animal studies strongly suggest that hibiscus can negatively affect pregnancies and have unwanted effects on menstruation. But that is the only medical caution I could uncover in over a hundred medical studies. Yeah, I researched this one more deeply than any sane person ever should. And no comments about that, please. At my age, I'm not a moving target. Following links embedded in the People's Pharmacies coverage, I found the article Physiological Effects and Human Health Benefits of Hibiscus, a review of clinical trials, published in the April 2022 issue of the journal Pharmaceuticals, available through the National Library of Medicine, which is a service of the National Institutes of Health, and PubMed Central. This beast of an article compiles information from 141 different clinical studies, most of which I either read or at least scanned. Because of that, I think I should condense the findings. First off, experts agree that hibiscus has, quote, great gut availability, meaning that it is well absorbed when taken orally as a supplement as a tea, flowers, and or other fresh plant material. Its clinically confirmed abilities are neuroprotective, meaning, quote, the ability to prevent brain cell death by intervening in and inhibiting the pathogenic cascade that results in cell dysfunction and eventual death. We're talking serious conditions like traumatic brain injury, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. 
the amount studied was 500 milligrams of hibiscus per kilogram of body weight. And as we all know, kilogram is 2.2 pounds. So you got to do math. We move on to high blood sugar and diabetes. Hibiscus improved insulin resistance at between 100 and 300 milligrams per kilogram of body weight when studied for 28 days. Those are two different studies. It proved equal to metformin when taken at a daily dose of 100 milligrams per kilogram. Obesity and high cholesterol, a daily dose of 200 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, lowered total cholesterol and raised HDL. That's the good cholesterol. It's a liver protectant. 25 to 50 milligrams per kilogram proved effective in one study. 100 to 200 milligrams worked in another. Perhaps most impressive and most frequently cited were the results when blood pressure control was studied. One study tested two bags daily of, quote, sour tea, a traditional hibiscus beverage in many parts of the world. Systolic blood pressure was lowered from 180 to 150, but that was a single-person study. A larger study with 46 recipients also showed significant results when they drank two cups of that sour tea, one in the morning, one in the evening. Here's some more on blood pressure. A larger study showed that two milligrams of hibiscus daily lowered blood pressure in people who weren't even hypertensive. Another showed that hibiscus is also an ACE inhibitor with significant positive results in 50 subjects after 28 days of use. What about supplements? Two daily hibiscus capsules at 320 milligrams each showed positive blood pressure results after 28 days. Another study found that two 375 milligram capsules daily proved better than the prescription medicine Captoril at lowering blood pressure. Other studies showed that it worked against ulcers as a breast cancer preventative. It is cardioprotective, heart health. It's a natural antibiotic, natural antifungal, and natural antibacterial. You get the idea. Every study cited in the review article found significantly positive effects of hibiscus on an almost unbelievable number of conditions. And outside of the caution to women about using hibiscus before, during, and after pregnancy, I found no safety concerns. On a personal note, I was a medical writer for decades before moving on to organic gardening, often specializing in studies of natural healing and botanic remedies. This is the first article that has led me to take action. I am now drinking an organic tea from Egypt, each bag containing 2,000 milligrams of, you guessed it, dried hibiscus flowers. Well, that sure was a righteous review of the potential medical benefits of hibiscus, now wasn't it? 
Luckily, the print version of the question of the week is back to being easily available. To read it over at your leisure or your leisure, just visit the Gurney's website, that's G-U-R-N-E-Y-S, and click on Garden Resources. Or type Gurney's plus You Bet Your Garden into your favorite search engine. Yikes, my producer is threatening to hide my hibiscus if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse of a question to Mike McGee, that's M-I-K-E-M-C-G, at ptd.net. That's Mike McGee at peterthomasdavid.net. Please include your phone number and location. You'll find all of our updated contact information, plus audio of this show, audio and video of previous shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast. It's all at our website, youbetyourgarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a public radio show and podcast produced and delivered to you every week from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when he went to a Saturday matinee and saw the monster in the closet in the movie The Brain That Wouldn't Die. Still looking for his brain is our musical director, Ken Queter. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and I'll be sleeping with the lights on until I can see you again next week.